Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geeks to Speak. You can learn about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Josie Haynes, and she started out in chemistry, but she transitioned to product engineering in the tech industry. And that's quite the shift, so I'm really interested in learning more about her motivation to making that switch. I'm also interested to learn more about her public speaking exploits and how public speaking has benefited her. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Josie. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. So I mentioned that you started off with in chemistry, so you got an undergraduate degree in chemistry. What was the motivation for that degree? Yes. So, you know, when I was getting my undergrad degree, and this was, you know, in 1995, my, you know, getting into software industry wasn't a big thing, wasn't as big a deal back then. And my parents really wanted me to be a doctor. And so even though I had spent a lot of time growing up with computers, I got my first computer when I was five, I got a Commodore 64. Uh, when I went to college, I was like, okay, I'll get a chemistry degree and be a doctor. Around my junior year, I realized I had no interest in going to grad school and going through another at least four years of medical school plus residency. And I was like, well, I better figure out what I'm going to do now. And I'd always had a passion for technology. And so when I graduated, I got a job actually with PricewaterhouseCoopers as a technical consultant. And the first thing that they did was send us to a three-month boot camp in Tampa. And they taught us how to code. And I'd taken a class, a coding class when I was in college. But the person who was teaching it was actually a graduate, was, was usually used to teaching graduate students and wasn't used to teaching freshmen. So nobody did well in the class. The average was actually like a 19 out of 120. So when I took that class, I was like, I have no idea. I'm never going to learn how to code, right? So then when I took this boot camp, I was like, oh, I can pick this up. It's just about like the way it was being taught to me. And I picked it up really quickly and they sent me to a training out here in California for a week on a technology that doesn't exist anymore now called Broad Vision. And I pretty much fell in love with the Bay Area, I fell in love with the culture, the climate. This was 1999, so we're talking about the middle of the dot-com boom. And I just fell in love with work, the ability to work somewhere where I could potentially impact the future. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can get a job out here. And in 2000, I applied to a couple startups and in January found a job as a web developer at a small, very much non-existent Silicon Valley uh, dot-com startup and started my tech career. I also noticed from the research I did on you that you ended up getting a master's in computer science. Did you do that before or after you started working at the startup companies? 
So that was after. And so that is something that, you know, I talked to a lot of people about the fact that I actually went back and got my master's degree. And so I actually worked for about five years before I went and did my master's degree. And I really encourage anybody actually who's thinking about getting a master's in computer science to work in the industry a little bit first because I, I actually found it much more valuable to have some industry experience and know the types of technology I was really interested in exploring when I went and got my master's degree. And I thought having the foundation in the industry made getting that degree much more valuable. Now, the reason I went back and got my degree is after about five years of working in tech, I got really tired of people asking me why my undergrad degree was in chemistry and I didn't have a computer science degree. And so, again, this was 2005. And one of the things that I also tell people is, you know, back then there wasn't nearly as much like online learning and things like that. So if I were to do this again, I'm not sure I would have gone back and gotten the master's degree because there's just so many other learning options. But back then it was a great way to kind of just up level some of the skills that I wanted to get deeper in. So before and after the, the master's in computer science, did the work that you do change or was it essentially the same? So it pretty much was the same. It was just building on it. So my first couple of years in the tech industry, I started as a web developer and ended up working at Sun on the Java download infrastructure. And so I was actually getting taking some classes while at Sun, but then they stopped doing their tuition reimbursement and I decided, hey, let me just go back to school and finish my degree full time. And I was actually working at NetApp part time while I was doing that. And then when I finished my degree, I actually stayed at NetApp and ended up working full time there for a few years until I ended up leaving NetApp with a bunch of other friends of mine and went to Zynga. Oh, okay, interesting. So, so when it comes to, I'm, just, I'm really curious about even going from chemistry to computer science, just the, I guess, I've, I've spoken to someone else on my podcast who did, I think she actually did chemistry as well as her undergrad. And then she ended up going and getting a bachelor's in, in civil engineering. So that was a big jump too. I mean, I'm sure the, the requirement, the, the prerequisites to get into the program were, were much different for chemistry than they were for civil engineering. Did you have that issue of, of you know, yes. making that big change? Yeah, so one of the things that I ended up doing was, as I mentioned before, I went back full time to get my master's. I was taking classes while I was working at Sun. And one of the things I did was I did have to take a number of the prerequisite undergrad classes so I could get into uh, the master's program. I didn't have to do all of them, but just basically like the core ones, like algorithms and you know operating systems things like that okay gotcha so now you have this master's in computer science so i have a friend and he has a podcast called snack walls and mm -hmm. he speaks he speaks to people about well, a, a number of things but one of the questions that he asks is about the i guess tech comp some tech companies at least the bigger ones are starting to remove the need to have a degree in computer science to to work at their companies 
Do you find that to be a, a good thing? And, and, or do you, do you see that there are some downsides to not having that degree? I absolutely think we should not be requiring computer science degrees to work in the tech industry. There's many ways to get to education. And like I said, like if it was now, I'm not sure I'd go back and get that master's degree, right? Like I think there's a lot more ways I could have much more efficiently used those two years with like online classes and really targeting what I wanted to learn. If, if I had had the options that are available today back then, right? And so, you know, one of the reasons I think this is such an important topic actually goes back to one goes to one of my side passions, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think it's something around uh, somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of uh, the people who are black who could end up getting software engineering jobs don't actually have like that four year CS degree. And so there's a huge number of people we're just not even allowing into the industry. And it's just because not having that piece of paper, even though they've gotten the training and learning from things like boot camps and other things, right? And so I think one of the big challenges is like there's this barrier to entry to getting into tech. And it's really these interviews, right? It's like what happens during this interview process to, to and, and it's big, the big challenges, right? Like if the interviews are just asking things like algorithms questions, which yes, you do learn in a, in a class, is that really gonna make an amazing software engineer? I don't know, right? And so one of the things that I, I really challenge people is do you really have to have that CS degree? I was like, no, I did this for five years before I went back and got my master's. And hey, I ran the Java download infrastructure and it didn't go down. So uh, somehow I managed to do that without having a CS degree. And so I really challenge people saying that you need a CS degree and I think we're actually limiting people who could be amazing software engineers by having those. You'd mentioned that during the, the interview process that they potentially ask questions about algorithms and you're unsure whether that's even useful in determining whether they can be good software engineers or not. What would you, in, in your opinion, what kind of questions would be asked at an interview to determine or whether someone would be a good uh, software engineer? You know, again, I think interviews are really, really hard, but I think the way I try to do that is make it be more of a pair programming question where you're actually working on something that's related to what you're going to be doing on a day to day basis. And so, you know, on my web team, for example, one of the interview questions we have is we actually have like a little basic uh, React JavaScript app that is just like the foundation. And then we say, hey, add this one or two features to it. And they do it as like a pair programming exercise, right? That's much closer to what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis like that's what we do all day pretty much is create you know javascript react components and because you're doing it as a pair programming exercise you can actually see hey how does this person interact with this other person are they collaborative do they take feedback well the other aspect that i really pr like to uh, look at when i'm looking at interviews is people's potential for growth and learning, right? Honestly, 
what has made me successful in this industry is my passion for learning and the fact that I've continued learning in the last 20 years. And so that's what I'm really looking for as well when I'm interviewing people is do they have that passion and that drive to just find that solution, right? Find how do we, what is that, that, you know, uh, next step that we can get to, right? And how do we keep finding it? Interesting. I suspect the reason so many companies keep this requirement for a CS degree is so that they can pare down the number of resumes they have to go through to, so that they even get to the interview process. So even if the, as you mentioned, 70 to 80% of, of, of black people that would potentially be eligible or could, could do the job but are being barred because of not having that degree, if you, in, if you include them in that application pool, now you're going to have even more people that you would need to, to sift through a bunch of resumes to sift through so you can get to the, the ones that you actually interview. What criteria do you think companies should use to like, pare down that number so that they can interview people? And, you know, the, the thing is, at the end of the day, right, if you're working like at one of the big five, right, like, yes, that is definitely a challenge you have. You're going to have hundreds of resumes coming your way. You know, when I was working at Apple, it was actually pretty crazy. Like we would have people who were completely not qualified, like applying to jobs just because they spammed every job at Apple. Like I literally would have people who were like dishwashers at a restaurant applying to like software engineering jobs, which was kind of crazy. But, um, <clears throat> but in most companies, like my company, right? I don't have a lot, like, I don't have a huge number of people applying to my jobs, right? I do have some people, right? But a lot of what I do and my team does is actually go out and source candidates, right? And find candidates who would be good fits for the company, right? And so I, I try to encourage our recruiting team to really explore outside of just LinkedIn and really look at other op options. There's so many amazing communities out there to increase diversity in the tech industry right now. Uh, there's the Black Tech Pipeline, which is doing an amazing job in trying to get and more black and brown people into tech. You know, Alpha is an amazing women in tech community, women who code, like I could list like 20 communities, right? And so, you know, I really tell people it's about focusing on getting out there to the different communities and finding those diverse candidates because here's the thing. Technology today is not fully addressing the needs of women or underrepresented minorities. Let's talk about voice assistance. It does not work as well if you have a, a female voice or because of the higher pitch or if you have an accent. Facial recognition software doesn't work as well if you have a darker skin tone. The underlying data that's being used by all of this machine learning has a lot of bias in it. And so to really be creating the technology we need to be solving the real problems of the future, not the convenience ones we've been solving so far, but like our real issues like climate change and 
you know, the, the horrible inequality we have in the Bay Area around, you know, income and things like that. Like, how can we use technology to solve those problems? To do that, we need diverse teams to be building that technology because you need those diverse mindsets to understand the challenges, like really, truly be part of this, to be part of, to find the solutions. We need those people to be finding the solutions with us, right? It's, it, you need all of the different perspectives. Okay. Yeah. Diversity. Yeah. I, I, I hear a lot about that these days. It's really important. And just like, as you mentioned, bringing in people of, 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 with, with different ideas uh, to benefit the company. At what point do you think that the issue of diversity will be, I don't want to say resolved, but won't be as big of an issue as it, as it currently is? Oh, I wish I could say I think it's going to be solved in the short term, but unfortunately, I, I don't know that that's the case, right? Um, we really need to, especially now, we're, we're in the middle of what could be a diversity recession. One in four women are considering doing something that they would have never done pre-pandemic, which is actually leaving the job market. And we're not just talking about in tech, we're talking about overall, right? And if you talk about just mothers, that actually goes up to one in three. And if we have that many women leave, not just tech, but like the job market entirely, that's going to be a huge impact on diversity. And so I think it's something that we really need to be focusing on because the, if you look at the statistics, like we're not going to be solving this for another like 70 or 80 years if we keep at the current rate that we're going. So Interesting. One in four women are, are considering leaving. Do you know why? Yes, um, it is because of the extra pressures of the pandemic and especially all of, a lot of the unspoken responsibilities women have at home around caretaking. Um, it, it, they're still picking up a lot more of the work at home, unfortunately. And so, yeah, a lot of women are considering leaving the workforce. This was all part of a McKenzie does a wonderful women in the workplace study every year. And so this was their latest research. Interesting. Is there anything that companies can do to convince these women to potentially not leave the workplace? Yes, you know, provide options for, you know, flexible work hours, you know, how, how can people do childcare now, right? You know, what are, you know, one of the things we even started doing at Tile is like once, I think it's once every week or once every other week, our admin does like a couple hour like child class with the kids, like a tutoring thing for the young kids, right? So at least parents have a couple hours, they could just, you know, have somebody take care of their, not take care of, but like entertain their kids so they can do maybe a couple things at home, right? I think it's the little things like if I, uh, providing, you know, a membership to something like care.com so you can get care resources, right? I think it's it, the benefits people need now are different than they needed pre-pandemic. Oh, interesting. I mean, you mentioned, huh, well, you'd mentioned that the, the work hours, making them more flexible, but people are, are working from home. Is it because, I don't work at a company, so I, I don't know, so maybe you do. So even though people are working from home, do they have to work set hours? 
Some people do, or, you know, you have meetings, right? And so one of the things that we did is between 12 and 1, we have no meeting time so that people can actually have the time to prepare lunch for their kids, right? And so it's, it's those little things that you might not think about. Like, I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have to prepare lunch for them. But I know a number of my colleagues do, and that's what they spend their lunch hour doing, and they really appreciate that they know that there's not going to be a meeting scheduled there and so they can take care of their family. And so I think it's about those little things to, to really figure out how you can help your employees thrive during these times. Nice. When it comes to public speaking specifically, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? Oh, no, no, no. So yeah, I, I was terrified of public speaking, actually. And I did not think I was going to get into public speaking. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, is this something that you're going to go do later in your life? I would have been like, no, absolutely not. Um, so this actually all comes back to 2018. Um, when I left the when I left Apple, I actually thought I was going to leave the tech industry. I was pretty fed up with how things went in Apple, and I was fed up with how women in tech got treated, and I was pretty ready to leave. And so I was, I was going to start my own small business, and I joined a small business mentorship program, and I met this lady who has a business which is about sharing your message with the world. And she became a close friend of mine. And I actually became her first customer, actually, for her uh, company. And she helped me create my talk for Grace Hopper. Because I really realized when I was about to leave the tech industry that I couldn't leave. Because if I did, I'd be giving up the ability to influence the future. And 56% of women leave tech after 10 to 20 years. And then 22% of those go and start their own small business. So I would have become a double statistic. And I realized I couldn't do that. And so I really wanted to come back to tech to be able to be on a mission to keep women and other underrepresented minorities in the tech industry with me. And I realized one of the best ways to do that was to become a better public speaker. And so I, I was not expecting actually to, to get accepted for that uh, talk at Grace Hopper because it's actually really hard to get a talk accepted at Grace Hopper. But, you know, I went through the process, submitted it and, you know, got to share my story. And it really kind of started my you know, public speaking, I've done over 40 talks now in the last 18 months, either around, you know, retaining women in tech, sharing my story, or, you know, I do a tile tech overview as well on the tech side of things. And, you know, it's really been great getting out there, sharing my message, meeting so many other people in the tech industry and just getting to hear what they're up to. And, you know, I actually really encourage people who are getting into tech to get into public speaking, even if it, even if you're not going to be, you know, doing presentations in front of hundreds of people, Everything is public speaking when it comes down to it. When you're a leader and you're in a meeting room, it's public speaking. 
you know, and so I, I tell people, try to do, you know, LinkedIn videos or, you know, Facebook lives or things like that as a way to practice, you know, getting your voice out there. And, you know, especially for people who are in the job market, that is a way to differentiate yourself, right? If you start recording content about what you're learning and share, you know, insights and interesting knowledge, it's almost like you're doing an interview for somebody without having to do an interview. I know numerous people who have gotten jobs because they've gotten into public speaking and they've been able to share their knowledge on LinkedIn and somebody was like, oh wow, I, I definitely want that. And so I highly encourage people to either, you know, create videos, you know, write blog posts, just get your get your get yourself out there. Nice. You've mentioned that you almost left tech just because of well, not just, but because of the the, the environment and you didn't really like it so much, but you ended up staying, you know, I've interviewed quite a number of, of female engineers. I'm always kind of curious as it, for the ones that did leave engineering, why they left. And most of them, like you even mentioned, some of them started their own businesses, but they said that they were going to start those businesses regardless of the environment that they came from. I'd really be interested to learn more. If you do know the, mm -hmm. I guess the numbers of, of women that leave because of, I guess the reason you almost left, because of being disgruntled as the ones that were going to leave anyway, because just uh, to do something else. It's pretty high. Um, I think it's, it was in the 60 or 70%. I don't know the exact percentage, but a lot, the, the, the number one reason women leave tech is not because they want to start a family and it's not because they want to do their own thing. It is actually the number one reason is actually because of the disgruntledness. And so it's a big challenge in the tech industry. And it's, it's, it's the small things, right? I call it death by a thousand paper cuts because I can't, yes, there were some bigger things that happened, but I can't point to one specific thing and say, that is the thing that, that triggered it. It's literally lots of little things. Here's some examples. When I, when I worked at Apple, I was the engineering manager and I had a male uh, project manager who worked with me. Whenever we'd walk into meetings, the assumption was always that he was the engineering manager and I was the project manager. Like, so the point that actually somebody even emailed me an apology at one point for actually making that assumption, right? And, and so it's, it's those little things, right? Like not being invited out to drinks when you hear, you know, on Monday morning that all the guys went out to drinks over the weekend, right? It, it, it's, you know, being, it, having your ideas appropriated in a meeting and having somebody else share that idea like 20 minutes later and be like, oh, it's great. But when you shared it, nobody, you know, spoke up. And it's, it's those little things. And it's why we need to put so much emphasis in how do we make companies more inclusive, right? And that's the piece. You know, so many diversity in some ways is the easier problem because it's a numbers game, right? Like 
you can say, oh, I need this many, you know, people of, you know, this, this race or this gender, whatever, right? You, it, it's a numbers thing, right? Inclusion is a lot harder. And so people don't focus on it as much. But if you don't have the inclusion, the diversity doesn't matter because those people are just going to leave, right? And so the big challenge in tech and in the job market in general, but definitely in tech is how do we create inclusive environments where everybody can thrive and, you know, remove this underlying bias that there is. When it comes to the presentations that you do, do you ever get nervous before them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Oh, absolutely. I totally get nervous before public speaking. And so this goes back to something I definitely got taught, um, which is I do power poses. Um, so this, is, this comes from Amy, Amy Cuddy's uh, power poses. And so I'll literally do a power pose and tell myself, like, I'm amazing. I'm going to, you know, do a great presentation and everyone's going to love what I have to say. And just really, you know, pump myself up and really take the time to realize these people, they don't know my talk, right? They don't know word for word what I'm going to say. And if I mess up, the only person who's going to know that I messed up is myself unless I show that I messed up, right? And so that's what I tell people. Like, nobody has your speech in front of them, right? Nobody knows exactly what words you're going to say. And so realize that, it's about sharing your message and your story. And it's about being vulnerable. People don't want to see perfection because guess what? We're not all perfect, right? And so people want to see that vulnerability. And the talks that are the most impactful are really the ones where somebody can, create, can share a discreet message, but also be vulnerable as well. You offer some really great tips to get better at public speaking, Josie. I really like the ones about doing LinkedIn videos and, and Facebook lives in order to practice. And then also the one about using power poses as a way to minimize nerves. Do you have any other tips that you can offer people to become more effective at public speaking? Yeah, you know, record yourself and watch yourself, which is really hard. Like, I still don't like hearing myself. And so one of the things that I always go back to is how you hear yourself is not how everybody else hears you. So you have to get over the fact that you might not like hearing yourself. And that is, that is one of the hardest things sometimes to get over when you start watching your videos. But if you can get over that, there is so much you can learn by just recording, doing your talk, and watching. Are you saying ums and likes? What are, what are those words that you say a lot that you might not notice, but then you watch your video and you're like, ah, that is something I need to keep out, keep a watch out for. And, you know, once you've graduated from recording yourself, give your talk to your pets, right? Like, you know, start, start with your pets, right? I know sometimes it could be, you'll feel scary giving it to a person. So I tell people like, my dogs have heard all of my talks many times. They don't complain. And so, you know, start, you know, your dogs are not, your dogs and cats aren't going to complain to you. So start with them and just realize people don't need you to be perfect. They just want to hear your message. 
Yes, and you you know you're messing up if your dog start walking away when you're when you're practicing in front of them. It's like, hey, get you, get get back here! <laughs> I ain't done. <laughs> you know, this has been really great talking to you, Josie. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can always find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my uh, LinkedIn is uh, Josie Haynes, and you can also email me at Josie at Starbug, S-T-A-R-B-U-G dot O-R-G. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. Consider checking out Teach the Geek to Speak. It's an online public speaking course. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Josie. Thanks. Bye. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.